Michael Hayes was serving his fifth term in prison when an epiphany struck. He had never acknowledged the trauma he grew up with, let alone work through it. The process of doing so changed his life, and he focused on helping others do the same. I want to see people talk about healing and talk about trauma because I think unpacking those things leads to healing. I don't care what. It can be age 9 to 99, right? But let's have this conversation because for me, that kind of justifies everything that I've gone through up until this point. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guest today is Michael Hayes, the founder of Umoja Health, Wellness, and Justice Collective. It's a Black-run nonprofit devoted to disrupting generational trauma for people in and out of prison, along with school-age youth. In this conversation, Hayes talks a lot about what he calls his healing journey. We talk about the critical factors of community and and peer-to-peer support, how Umoja differs from traditional 12-step programs, and how he and others in their 50s work to break through to teenagers. I am an American woodsman, my fortune for to seek. I am an American woodsman, as plain as day can be. Naturalist John J. Audubon has his life and work put to music in The American Woodsman, getting its world premiere at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. Asheville playwright and director Lori Pandy built the story and songs from Audubon's journals. A cast of operatic vocalists and a live musical duo brings them all to life. The American Woodsman opens June 23rd and runs eight performances through July 2nd. For tickets and more information, go to WorthamArts.org. I began my conversation with Michael Hayes by asking how he turned the transformational work in his own life into the seeds of what became Umoja. The idea was a culmination of the work that I've done throughout my life, really, here in Asheville. But it was also, it had a lot to do with my healing journey. So my healing journey didn't start until 2017, which was my fifth time in prison, and that's when the healing journey started for me. But the idea of Umoja happened a long time ago. I did. A, I used to have a company called the Urban Arts Institute, a nonprofit called the Urban Arts Institute, where we went into the communities and taught arts to the historically oppressed community members, particularly the young folks. So we had a youth program with the Urban Arts Institute. We had dance. We did theater. We did a lot of things within the arts. And it was for, you know, low-income children. And, and that was here in Asheville. That was here in Asheville. That was 10 years ago was our last performance. You just said a few things that kind of are a confluence of circumstances that led to where you are. You said Umoja really came to birth after your fifth time in prison. Yes. Now, Can you give us an arc? I don't want you to go into all the nitty gritty details of your time in prison, but at what age did you first, were you first incarcerated and give me the arc to through your fifth time? The first time I was incarcerated, I was 25. And then next three times were in my late thirties. And then my last time was, like I said, 2017. That's quite a span of time you spent most of your adulthood, or at least good pockets of your adulthood, incarcerated. Yes. What happened during your fifth time in prison that was different than the previous four that kind of set your path on what you called your healing journey? First thing I did was I prayed. I asked God to reveal to me what was wrong with me. And and immediately after that, a young lady from RHA, one of the counselors came up and she 
gave 10 of us because there was only 10 of us that can come out to the room for activities. But she gave 10 of us the ACES survey, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. I took that survey and it was 10 questions that had to deal with things about abuse, uh, things that happened in the home if somebody went to prison or if there was drugs in the home and things like that. But I ended up scoring a 10 out of 10. And for every point that you score on the ACES survey, that is a point that becomes a risk factor. So I had a 10 out of 10. So it showed that I had a high risk factor. And the counselor, she called me down to go over my score because I, I know I had a high score, but I guess I was the only one that scored a 10 out of 10. But she revealed some things to me, Matt. She revealed to me that because of that 10 out of 10, that is probably why I had a substance use issue. That's probably why I had anger management issues. That's probably why I was in and out of prison. But she told me that it would definitely be why I end up dying 20 years earlier because the health ramifications having a high A score can have. It's a lot to do with the brain and the body because I'm always in fight or flight. Do you think a lot of these things that you were made aware of at this time, I can't imagine that those were mysteries to you beforehand. You knew those things, but do you think you were in a place or an age to digest this information in a way that in your 20s, you never would have been able to process it? Man, I didn't know those things, though. I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of trauma. I wasn't aware of how trauma affected me. I wasn't even aware of trauma. That's not something that we discuss in the community that I'm from. We discuss things like what goes on in the house stays in the house. Don't talk about it. Pray about it. We discuss things like boys don't cry. We live by those abnormal cultural sayings. And because of that, I didn't get to discuss what happened to me at eight years old and I was traumatized. So I had to live with all of that without sharing it with anybody. And that was the reason why I was that I was showing out that I was acting out that I was acting out of character. That I always stayed in fight or flight that I was mm-hmm. always angry. It's because I had to suppress all those traumas that I went through being aware of trauma. I wasn't aware of trauma until I was 40 something years old. That's r- really stark. Now, you must have grown up among other people who were experiencing this as well. And I imagine you mentioned the cultural aspect. These are things that nobody probably talked about within your community, right? Let alone your own family. Did you have brothers and sisters who were going through the same thing? I had three brothers and two sisters that grew up in the same household. And all of us responded to our childhood very differently. Were you unable or were your siblings unable to identify with you? Did you feel really separated from them in some sense because you were experiencing it differently? Close-knit family, but some of the things that happened to me didn't happen to them. Me being molested, I don't think that happened to the rest of my brothers and sisters, right? Me seeing somebody get murdered, I don't think that happened to them. But me being shut off from talking about it, I think that had a bigger impact on me than anything else. And I had one brother that got severely burned. That's trauma for him, but he's a doctor. The brothers that I and my sister that I grew up with, like all of them are pretty much professionals in their field. I'm now a paraprofessional <laughs> in what I do now, but they grew up with the idea of becoming successful will get them out of because we went from a went from growing up in middle class that we went to a, the lower class and it was where my mom's and my father divorced. But all of us our perceptions of it was different. So that kind of changed how we responded to different traumas and how we responded to growing up. Yeah. Now, you said you were in your 40s yes. when this all came to you in, as this big awakening, in a yes. sense. It's one thing to be aware. It's another to be in a position to act on that change. You've spent your entire life up to that point dealing with these anger issues, not processing the trauma, holding it all in. 
what gave you the wherewithal to then, you said you prayed, how did you have the wherewithal to unravel all of this and see your way out of the tangle? So during this 18 month prison sentence, I had to do a 90 day substance abuse stretch at one of the camps in Salisbury. And during that time, Matt, we had to write our story of our addiction, what we were addicted to, what was our substance of choice, and how we got to that substance of choice. And it had to be 10 pages. It couldn't be large print. You couldn't skip lines. But instead of writing about that, I started to unpack the things that happened to me. I started to unpack the trauma. So I wrote a 15-page story about the traumas that I went through, and that was the first time that I really got to share for myself what happened, right? So every page I'm writing, it's teardrops on it, but then I had to share it with the group. And after that, it is 33 men, some of them been in there for 20 plus years, man. I'm talking like working out, swollen, right? But after I shared that story, we ended up outside and everybody else was sharing their stories. And we had comment, we had a common denominator that all of us had been through some type of childhood trauma. So it went from 34 of us outside on the yard having these conversations, supporting each other to other inmates coming out. And then I got to see what community, communal healing looked like. And that was the part where the light bulb went off, man, I'm not the only one that went through this. So as we started this healing journey, then after my 90 days was over and I'm leaving the camp and it's 100 plus inmates wishing me well because we all got to do this communal healing together. I was able to carry what I learned from that experience to when I got released to just wanting to see my community in a better place of healing. First of all, we had to address the fact that we've been traumatized. And even to this day, a lot of people don't want to have that conversation, but we have to have that conversation because if you understand that you've been traumatized, you also understand that you've been living resiliency within your life the whole time you've been going through the trauma. But the healing journey, tell me if I'm wrong on this, it's not a straight line. Oh, It's circular, winding, there's pitfalls. And even though you're released from prison with the building blocks, or at least you're on the first steps of that healing journey, you can't know the directions that journey is going to take you. Give us a sense of how your healing journey looked once you got out of prison this fifth time what are some of the steps of healing that people don't really understand or take stock of becoming aware is one thing but being able to talk about it is the next thing in in our community i'm so glad that we talk mental health now and people understand that therapy can work for people but for me it wasn't me going to a therapist it was me connecting with people who I've been through struggles with. The beauty of peer support work is that you get to take, you get to connect with someone who has the same life experience or similar life experiences, lived experiences. So you get to have these conversations with your peer support specialist. I was fortunate that I had three great peer support specialists that as soon as I got out, I was in touch with. That's Tony Shivers, Philip Cooper, and Gene Edison. All three of these guys helped me, supported me, and finding myself, Gene Edison, he said, okay, Michael, we're going to rebuild your brand, right? So I started working at Green Opportunities. Philip Cooper's, yo, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to tell you about this peer support work. I actually applied to become a peer support specialist while I was still in prison. And that happened because of Jonathan McKnight, who's another peer support specialist that supported me. Peer support specialist through... 
through Goodwill. I think Philip, I'm not sure who he, I think he was working with AB Tech at that time. Tony was working at Goodwill as well. Gene was working with Green Opportunities. Okay. So all these peer support specialists. So that was the beginning for me because now I didn't have to come out and not have anybody to discuss these things with. But the most beautiful thing that happened for me is that I got connected with Resource for Resiliency mm-hmm. and I became a trauma-informed resiliency-focused facilitator after I took the training like seven different times because it kept revealing so much more stuff to me. That's really validating to have that, to be invited to be that sort of facilitator at that point. But you said you applied seven times until you were brought on and you had to deal with your own addiction issues. Mm -hmm. Again, it's another thing to understand, oh, I have anger issues. Mm -hmm. I have trauma. I am addicted. It's another to solve the puzzles of them or at least get a handle on them. Mm -hmm. What were your challenges or your greatest challenges to where you felt you were on top of them? So it's always once you come out, it's how, for me, it was always, how am I going to be accepted, right? If I would have came out and felt that I was shunned by the community, that I embraced and that embraced me, that might have led me back to substance use, right? But instead, I got to be embraced for my lived experience, for the fact that I did, I, I did have an addiction issue. I did have a substance use disorder. So because of that, I was able to share my story. And the more I shared, the better I felt. Now, for me, I understood that my trauma was really the overarching issue of my substance misuse. My substance use disorder was because I was traumatized. So once I started a healing journey, I didn't need the substances to cope with life anymore. I was able to really live life and I'm still able to live life to the fullest as I am because of my lived experience, because of everything I went through, but really because I understood that the trauma wasn't my fault. For so long, I carried that trauma around. For 40 years, I carried it around, Matt, like it was my fault. Everything that happened to me, I asked for it, but no one is calling up Amazon, ordering up a pallet of trauma, right? No one is doing that. So it happened after understanding it happened, but now I get to move forward, understanding I don't have to go back to what I used to be. Were the people in your life who were harmed and affected by what led you to prison or even other things that weren't chargeable offenses, were they accepting of you when you came back? Did you get forgiveness? Did you ask forgiveness? What was the process of being welcomed back into your community beyond the people who invited you into being a peer support specialist? The best example of that is my ex-wife, my first wife, Paula, our children, Mike, Mike and Demarcus, my son, Taekwon, Paula, and all of them work for Yamoja now, with exception of Mike and Demarcus, but my ex-wife, Paula, she works at Yamoja. She forgave me. And when I told her, when I shared with her the trauma, I had to, sh- I had to share everything with everybody. There was no more of me holding back everything that happened to me when I was younger that I held on to. So when I shared it with my sons, when I shared it with my ex-wife, when I shared it with my wife, Brandy, Paula, it was her response that really that I hold true to because she said, I knew something happened because I knew that this wasn't you. And my sons, they said almost the same thing. So the forgiveness from my family, I harmed them more than anyone else. And so the forgiveness from them was the biggest stepping stone that I needed. It had to be really revelatory for them as well as you because this was new information for you. Yes. You hadn't realized it. So as you were learning your story, you're telling them your story. Yes. So then, okay, so you are invited to become a peer support specialist. I imagine that work was a ramp up to Umoja, wasn't it? Yes. As a matter of fact, that led to the work of Umoja, becoming a peer support specialist and becoming a trauma, trauma-informed, resiliency-focused facilitator. 
it's one thing to get a handle on your own issues. It's another to be an entirely other skill set, I imagine, to help others get through theirs. What did you learn about yourself and about others in the broader community once you became a peer support specialist? What did that inform you about your own story and what's going on in the community at large? So the greatest gift the peer support specialist holds is the ability to listen without judgment, without you, you can't judge through your facial expression, through your body language. You just listen. That is the greatest gift we have. And for me, being able to hear other people, not just, OK, you telling me something and I'm coming up with a solution, but to be able to hear other people's story. And that just like really just it just honed in for me that I'm not alone in this thing. And then when I get to share my lived experience with those that I'm working with, then they get to understand they're not alone. And once people start feeling that they're a part of something bigger that can be better, like I did, I don't know, it just led for me to do better. And I just, I wanted to see people start a healing. I want to see people talk about healing and talk about trauma because I think unpacking those things leads to healing. I don't care what, it can be age nine to 99, like, but let's have this conversation because for me, that kind of justifies everything that I've gone through up until this point. The Overlook is going live. My first live podcasting event features a conversation with Asheville Symphony Music Director Darko Buderitz. Black Asheville leaders tell us what they think about the city's commitment and progress toward reparations, and the resonant rogues will talk about and perform songs from their upcoming record. That's three episodes of The Overlook in one evening. The Overlook Live happens Wednesday, September 27th at the Wortham Center. Tickets will be $30 when they go on sale to the public, but anyone joining my Patreon campaign in June gets in free. Go to patreon.com slash the Overlook podcast. I've never gone through a 12-step program like AA or NA. What's different about your experience and what you're doing, even through Umoja, that is different or similar to those programs? People who can relate to those Give us what's the sense of the contrast of Umoja. Okay, a lot of it is very similar. It's still all about you understanding that it's a higher power. You understand the principles of, okay, now that I have this, what I've learned, I'm going to give this away, right? We don't become peer support specialists, community health workers to hold on to the fact that we have these certifications, right? It's like, how can I give this away so that somebody else can benefit from my story? You know, biblically it says the words of our testimony was supposed to be a blessing to other people, right? So if I share my testimony with other people, then it's supposed to strengthen other people. So it's the same principles as 12-step programs. Yamoja is means unity in Swahili. It's one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. And living by those principles, when we're talking like unity, you have to be non-judgmental, but it's like unifying a community of people, a body of people, right? So in order to do that, the first thing that we do when people come in, it doesn't matter what they are, we discuss, listen, we are trauma-informed, resiliency-focused. We are culturally specific about how we do this because we want to see this culture of healing. And when we have those conversations that we start off with, giving people the definition of what trauma is so they can see how it might have shown up in their lives when they understand what generational trauma is, systemic trauma is, and all of that. And then you see the light bulb come on. Wow. 
I imagine the culturally specific elements mm-hmm. of this are what really separates Umoja from these other 12-step programs that are all-inclusive. And, and what you're saying is programmatically very similar. But by being having that cultural commonality that you're probably able to reach people and dig into story and get a certain sense of vulnerability from these people who you're working with who that may not come through in a typical 12-step program. Is that yes, correct? I think that is correct. And I think because we do speak a culture of, and we want to share like true authentic stories, right? And understanding that cultural humility, like being humble to the fact that you don't know everybody's culture. I think that's first when we start talking culturally specific, right? But when we talk culturally specific, a lot of people think like it's just African-American specific. No, it is, it's made, it's created through the eyes of BIPOC people, yes. But it's because we all have been through something and we have to get off this high horse like our heritage or our community or our tribe has never been traumatized. Every group of people throughout history, somewhere along the line, every group of people, they've had trauma in their heritage. Every group. There's not one group that has not been traumatized. So with us understanding that, then we understand like this cultural competency of us being traumatized. We can also have this cultural competency of us starting to heal together. Yeah. You just said something I thought was really interesting. I imagine people on the outside look at it as, oh, it's BIPOC, it's race-based. He, and you're you're saying, no, that might be part of the cultural milieu that you're looking at. What are some of the other elements of how you define culture and culturally specific programming and care and treatment and healing that that go beneath the skin? So when I speak culture, man, I'm talking about beliefs and moral values and the fact that, like I said, the fact that every group of people have been traumatized, Right. So just taking that part alone, that allows us to get deeper because now we get to see each other as humans. And a lot of people like to say that a substance use disorder has no color. Substance use disorder might not have a color. It can affect everybody. But when you look at recovery specifically, I'm going to just speak Western North Carolina. When we look at recovery in Western North Carolina, you'll see that most of the major players in the recovery game are white-led organizations. Okay, that's great. Do your thing. When we talk culturally specific, we want to be able to serve everybody through the lens of black people creating something, but understanding that it works and the culture of it is centered around healing first. I, man, I've the people that we've served oh, since 2019, Matt, the beautiful part about it is every program that we have is centered around healing. It's centered around unpacking the trauma. And once they start unpacking the trauma, you'll be you you'll be surprised at how many people say, Oh, that's what's wrong. It's not me getting high. Me getting high, that's that's the underlining issue. So with that, man, with us creating that culture of like really having those conversations, that's what I'm excited about. Can I ask, how do you facilitate healing? What goes into that? So it's different for everybody, right? But I think when most people start to understand what trauma looks like, but also understand that within that trauma, you have a store of resiliency too, then the healing can start just from that part alone. I've had somebody tell me, Matt, that just being able to unpack their story with somebody just listening, no judgment, that was the beginning of their healing. I've heard that several times. So then we let, so it's not for me to decide how you heal. What I want to do is guide you or be or support you in whatever steps you want to take for your healing. I can imagine that a lot of the people you're working with, maybe all of the people you're working with, just by being heard and listened to 
that their history is being respected deeply. Tell me if I'm wrong on this. It sounds simple, but is but it's elusive that that kind of attention, real sincere attention is what these people largely have been missing through a lot of their lives. And you're saying that is really the key to the beginning of this healing. That's the key, man. If you think about it, we've become a we become a nation that's so divisive, right? Black, white, Republican, Democrat, like all of these different things that has us thinking that we're different when we're really the same. We're really all human beings. So if you just think about it from the like the the most basic humanistic point of view, right? We want connection, right? So once the table is set for somebody to feel heard, feel validated, feel that they're respected, feel that their story is respected and is heard, that's something that changes. And this happens with some of our youngest. I hope for the future program started out with 32 young kids at Irwin Middle School. And I want to give props to my man, Travis Collins, who was the principal over at Irwin Middle School that allowed us to come back this year. But last year started out with 32 students who really was just coming to the hope for the future because they just wanted to hear what was going to go on. And we started talking about trauma and resiliency and explaining to seven and eight graders that you've been trained. You just got out of a pandemic. I can't say that I understand that because I've never been through a pandemic. So tell me what happened. Tell me what do you feel like? How do you feel about that? And Matt, that conversation went on for three weeks. These kids talked about everything from why they started, how it made them want to start using drugs because they was finding their mamas and daddies drugs on how they felt that their mental health was being, they don't know what's going on. They felt isolated. They felt crazy, right? This is some of the terminology they were using. And then from then, I'm like, keep talking. So for three weeks, we just talked. It really, they started to trust me because I listen without judgment. You just anticipated a question I was going to ask about who comes into your programs and how do they come in? You mentioned Irwin High School. It started with 32 students, seventh and eighth graders. Their principal invited you in. How do people come into your program? So we've recently got our website up so people get to see some of the work that we do, but Man, we don't advertise a lot. It happened through word of mouth from the first time we put the sign up on 441 North Louisiana Avenue, Suite E. That's the first suite that we got. Philip Cooper recorded it. And I got our first call. The first call lasted for about four or five hours. We talked until two o'clock in the morning with a young man who didn't want his friends to know he was seeking recovery because of the judgmental part. Oh, man, you a punk. You don't want to get high with us no more. He didn't want to hear all that. He just wanted to seek recovery. He knew that his, we was in the middle of the pandemic. He knew that he was, he was doing wrong by his family. He wanted to be better. So two o'clock in the morning. We, we talked, and at 3.30, I went and picked him up, and I took him to a rehab without nobody knowing. Word of mouth, but people can just come in, come to the office, they can give us a call, or they can go on our website. How do the arts come into play in, your, in the healing journeys that you help people mm-hmm. go on? So throughout my life, the arts has always been there for me. I've been a, I was like the first rapper here in Asheville back in the 80s. And I did plays. I did a lot of plays. I got invited to do a Tyler Perry play. Like I have been, the arts has always been my thing for healing. So when we had this opportunity to start the Urban Arts Institute, we started it. But I didn't know it was healing until I got out of prison. And it was Father's Day, and about 20 of my students came to my house. My former students came to my house. They still remember the dance routines and everything that we did. But we had a conversation after I cooked, which on Father's Day, I wasn't supposed to be cooking, but they love my food, so I cooked. And they said, Mr. Hayes, what, what you didn't know was like, this was healing for us. 
because we had a place where we can come. And I, man, you're talking about a, a strict dance teacher. I'm the strictest there is. Like we used to rehearse over and over, but they said we liked that because we expected that because you expected us to be, no one be going to be perfect. We was going to be close to perfect. And it was healing for them because it was something that for them and they created. So healing through the arts has always been healing a capacity. If you think about it, when we think about back in the days of enslaved people, the healing part, they weren't just singing just to sing the day away. They were singing because it was soothing. It was healing for them. So up until this point now, the arts are still relevant when it comes to us being able to express ourselves in some type of way. So when we understand, connect those two like the resiliency part to the art part and unpacking stuff through the arts. We have, I got some great work by some of our students where you see, you know, their traumatic journey, but then you see their colors starting to brighten up once they start the healing journey. We want our children to see you can have this hard stuff happen, but you can persevere in the middle of the hard stuff. It's all individually based. You're not like, you're not connected to, let's say, Buncombe County, their sheriff's office and people coming out of there needing support. Are you connected to any other agencies in town? So we are, we've partnered with a few agencies to make some things happen. I will say that Sarah Guyton with Buncombe County Sheriff's Department, she was very instrumental in us being able to do work that expanded with more youth with our Hope for the Future program. But yeah, we get a lot of referrals. Yeah, we got a couple of people that work up with, with the Justice Center. We got a few people that like work within the jails that they refer people to come see us. We got, we get referrals from October Rose sometimes, referrals from Family Prayers. So we get referrals from other people, but it's, yeah, we're open for anybody to come in. So it's all ages, pretty much. All ages, so, yes, sir. But yet you're talking a lot about the Hope for the Future program. That seems to be a cornerstone. One of the cornerstones of Umoja is really working with young people giving them the opportunities to hear these things in a way you never did when you were young. How do you do that when you're in your fifties and you, you remember the old scared straight programs yes. and this seems not like scared no. straight at all. So talk about what's changed. How are, you know, from the scared straight when you and I were teenagers. Right. So what's different now and how do older people, you could be their father or grandfather. How do you get through to seventh and eighth graders in a way that their families aren't able to get through? I'm going to tell you this, Matt, I'm blessed to do it because I really couldn't tell you how I'm able to connect with young people still. But I think the main thing that we do at Yamoja, and that's me and the rest of our staff, we treat our young people as human beings instead of looking at them as, oh, you're young, you don't know anything. Yes, yeah, a great time to mold the mind, but they go through trauma. They have mental health issues. They have a lot of things that are going on within their lives that I didn't have to deal with. I didn't have to deal with social media. I didn't have to deal with a pandemic. I didn't have to deal with being out of school for like almost two years and then like leaving as a fifth grader, then coming back to school as a seventh grader and didn't have that, uh, that opportunity to adjust socially. So listening to what they're really going through, allowing them this opportunity to, to unpack. But I'm going to tell you, man, kids can read through. You would try to put this mask on and try to be something that you're not. I believe our children can read through that. So I'm as real as I can possibly be with them. I'm always who I am. I'm always going to advocate for them. I'm always going to love them, but I don't coddle them because a lot of kids don't want to be, they want to be loved, but they don't want to say, oh, that's going to be all right. If they do something wrong, they don't want to hear, oh, it's going to be all right. No, they expect to be held accountable, right? If you let them know what accountability looks like, we treat them as humans. Like we connect. And plus, I got a great group that started from Irwin Middle School that I can take with me, like Julia Darity, Dee Dee Sullivan, Nigerio Carson, Miles, JoJo. So I got a lot of them that 
came so I can, and they're with me a lot of places I go. Like when I go speak at different places, I take the kids with me because if I'm going to speak on Yamosia, I'd rather you see what we do instead of hearing it from me. And they're your best advertisement in a yes, sense. they are. Right? And also, I, you've touched on this a, a little bit just now between being on their screens, social media, the pandemic, the lives of teenagers today are wholly different than when we were. What's changed about your program since you first started? It's only been several years. Mm-hmm. What's different now than when you first launched it? I'm going to tell you, the biggest thing that's happening now is that, okay, so we get through the healing part, particularly with our young folks, right? So we started out, we were doing young folks because we were getting referrals from DSS to work with those who were coming for domestic violence situations, right? And their kids were involved. The kids would come, they would do some of their CFTs there, their family meetings together. Can you explain what are CFTs? CFTs are, they're facilitating meetings with the family and the DSS. Like therapists, is that like family therapists? Sometimes therapists can be there, but really it's them trying to work out their differences. And we will have spaces for the children to come because we will have toys and all those good things set up. So then we ended up having a kind of a, pod a learning pod for them to come but it evolved into what it is now now we're understanding though that we have to have deeper conversations about prevention not only violence prevention not just gang prevention i'm working with rha right now as a prevention specialist that's like really focusing on substance prevention and what is rha rha is a they're actually letters don't mean anything. It's just RT. It used to stand for something. <laughs> Every time I hear an acronym, I want to understand what it is. Yeah. You're saying it doesn't even mean anything. It really doesn't. Okay. RHA, they are one of the providers here that do behavioral health, mental health. They have a lot of great services, but I'm working with their substance-free youth team now with, as a prevention specialist. And we're understanding now that we have to have conversations now about prevention because it is so easily accessible now. So even though you have kids that are like going through the trauma and wanting to unpack it, you still have kids who will easily take something that will help them slip away, like a different coping mechanism that help them slip away from reality. And it is, it is, man, it is there for the taking now. And the drugs today are different than Ooh, yesteryear. Yes, Opioids and meth are yes, a lot more damaging. Yes, and- Even the vapes are the new things now. And the vapes with that raw THC in it, they'll be high for six hours, Matt. Six hours if they choose to. What we're trying to do is let them know there are other choices, there are better choices. And it's not for me to go in and say, oh, say no to drugs. Can't do that no more. It's for me to go in and say, okay, let's talk about why. You know what I'm saying? So you tell me why, and I'm going to tell you what can happen with that why if we choose to like look at di- look at this thing differently instead of talking about the issues that are ahead, dealing with the issues, learning how to deal with the trauma, learning who you can talk to, learning what programs out there for you, instead of them thinking all the only option they have is to get high. There's no charge for any of the Umoja programs, it's right? It's all free. It's all, that's amazing. It's been a number of years since you were incarcerated. I can't imagine, though, that you're done with your healing journey. You're probably still on your own path. Where are you at now, Michael? And how are you able to stay on top of things and not ever go back? My healing journey is a continuum. I still, when I go to Winston-Salem and I, I, went, I wanted to show my children where I grew up and where some of those traumas happened, as I pulled into this complex and it still looks just as bad as it did when I was raised there, it's still that 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 thing that happens in my stomach. A little anxiety starts to sit in. So I didn't stay really a long time. I was going to take some pictures, and but I couldn't even do that because I started. So I left. My wife noticed. My children didn't notice, right? So we left. So there's still some things that still trigger me, right, that still stress me a little bit. But Matt, my I know my journey will be forever. It's going to always be a, it's not always going to be a continuum. 
But the beautiful thing about it is to recognize that it is and enjoy every moment that I have, that I am centered, that I am grounded, that I do feel validated, right? And really be able to reset with those moments. There's this one tool that I use all the time. It's called a resource tool, right? And a resource tool is when you think about if you get in a stressful situation or get triggered, you think back to a time where you felt validated and felt good and you bring that that, that time to the present, but you have to detail it, right? It has to be like a film rolling through your head. And my moments, I can choose moments with my children. I can choose moments with my wife. I can choose moments with my older children. But my beautiful moments, right, I have my six-year-old. And the thing about my six-year-old daughter, and that's my only girl. Her name is Michaela. She's named after me. My wife was pregnant with her on my last stint going to prison. She was pregnant with her. And when this lady told me, when the lady from RHA told me that I, I'm probably going to die 20 years earlier, Matt, within a split second, I saw my, and I haven't even met her yet. She was still, she was only like two months pregnant then. But her whole life flashed before my eyes, her being born, her walking, her talking, her going to prom, her getting married, her having family, her whole life flashed before my eyes, and I was not in one frame. <clears throat> and that broke me down. That's when my healing started. So when I get to see her, and she comes in, and like she'll wake up in the morning, she'll get up out of her bed, and she'll come and lay beside me, and my hair smelling like strawberries, and it's so curly, and it's so wild, and she'll lay right here in the crook of my arm. How old is she now? She is six years old now. Okay, wow. Yep. I want to thank my guest today, Michael Hayes, the founder of Umoja Health, Wellness, and Justice Collective. Our new First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are available every Monday through Thursday morning. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.